Amen. If you have a Bible, you can turn uh, to Acts chapter 2. <clears throat> we are beginning a uh, new series that's going to carry us all the way up to Advent. Uh, right after Thanksgiving, we'll start a Christmas series. But this fall, we're going to be studying this book called Acts, which if you're not familiar with the Bible, there is the first four books of the Bible are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are all gospels. They're stories about the life of Jesus. One of those authors, uh, his name is Luke, and he named the book after himself, Luke. Very clever, you know. Matthew did the same thing. So did Mark, and so did John, so don't blame Luke. But Luke actually wrote another book, and it's kind of volume two, and it's the book of Acts. And the book of Acts is the story of the beginning of the church. So the Gospels are the ministry of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, and then Acts begins with the ascension of Jesus and the beginning of the church. So we're going all the way back to the roots of our beginning. We're going back to study about the original gangsters, the OG of the church. We're going back to find out what actually happened there so that we can learn about ourselves and learn about the church and the community and who we are here in Nashville. And if you look at chapter one, in verse eight, it kind of, Jesus sums up almost the entire book. Some people would call this Acts of the Apostles. I think a more accurate way to understand the book of Acts is it's the continual acts of Jesus through the power of his Holy Spirit. And what he says to the church in verse 8 is significant because this is going to kind of, it's going to drive us and help us think about the book of Acts this entire fall. Are you with me or are you already asleep? <clears throat> All right, verse 8. This is Jesus, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. What Jesus was saying is, hang on, because the power is coming. And when the Holy Spirit descends upon you and gives you power, you're going to do something. And what you're going to do is you're going to be a witness. A witness to me. So what does that mean? That we're to be a witness? Like... Like, what is that talking about? <clears throat> Let's just pause for a minute. And can we just talk about how much I love Nashville soccer? All right? Can we just talk about this just for a second? Have you been to a game? Has anybody here been to a Nashville soccer game? Okay. So most of you have not, so let me explain it to you, because you are missing out. We have a new stadium in this city. Do you know that? We have the largest stadium dedicated to soccer in the world. That's not true. But in the universe, possibly. This Geoda Stadium is unbelievable. I mean, so when you go to the games, like you park like 20 miles away, and then you, you go on a pilgrimage, and you, you're getting weary, and you're buying water for $10 a bottle, you know, you don't care. But as you get closer and closer to the Geodas, you know, the, this beacon in the sky, the crowds start to thicken, you know, and blue and gold just starts to emerge out of the neighborhoods. And just everybody starts to move into this crowd, and you're coming up, and everybody's smiling. Like, you realize we all have a singular purpose, you know, and we're together. I don't know your name, but you're my brother. You're my sister. And as you get to the stadium, there are bandstands outside the stadium, and bands are way like nobody's listening to it, but they're impressive. Like they're just, you're here, you're here, and you're excited to be there. And then you go into the stadium. Oh, 
How do I describe it? There is not a bad seat in the entire stadium. Am I right? It's beautiful. Every seat is like 30,000 seats, and it feels like you're sitting on the field with the players. It is absolutely unbelievable. And when the games are, there is a section. I don't know if it has a name. But one of the end zones of the soccer field, there is a section of just the stands where there looks like lifeguard stands in front of them. And what they are is these podiums and these maniacs, literally these maniacs are climbing up on this 10 foot like lifeguard stand and facing the crowd and it's a crowd full of maniacs. And they all know these cheers. And for 90 minutes, that maniac on that lifeguard stand never stops. Like 20 minutes in, you're like, he's not going to be able to do it for another 10 minutes. He does it for another 10 minutes. And he's just got the crowd whipped up in craze. And there are guys on drums that are just boom, 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 just beating them the whole game. Like the energy coming from that section, it's so intoxicating. I have on uh, good authority that there have been women in this community, I'm not going to name names, that have left their seat and gone and stood in that section because they just wanted to be in that super fan section. You may be that person. It's unbelievable. Let me tell you what else is great. The food. I'm telling you. I don't know what it is. There is a section of the stadium in the club section that if you have the right wristband, they have all, it's this huge room. It's about 10 times the size of this room. And there's food stations everywhere serving every kind of food you can imagine from corner pub to, you know, hot chicken to barbecue, you name it. And then there's a bar that's longer than this room, all right, that is serving all your favorite beverages. And if you have the wristband, it's all free. Like you can go in and pile up a plate full of this food, go to your seat, eat it all, come back, flash the wristband, do it again. Go eat it again. Then come back, flash it, do it again. They don't care. It's unbelievable. I got to tell you this. There's something, that I, I do think that there's something magical about this stadium because um, I can confidently tell you that I have never in my life cooked a hot dog. <clears throat> like I don't ever look at Renee about 5.30 at night and go, hey, what do you want for dinner? And I'm like, you know what? If we could just boil some hot dogs, <laughs> I just think I would be in heaven. I've never done that. I've never done that in the two years we've been married. I have never <laughs> said to Renee, I want a hot dog. But in Geoda Stadium, a hot dog, when you bite into that hot dog, it's like, like angels sing. I mean, you know, it's just so, the environment, the smells, the lights, the fireworks, the smoke coming from that section because the drummers are on fire, you know. All of it's magical. You got to go. Here's the problem. Now, there's a little problem, all right? Here's the problem. I don't know anything about soccer. <laughs> I gotta say, I'm honest. I'm honest with you. I know Zippo. I don't know any of the positions. I don't know any of the plays. I, I don't get the game at all. Like, I cannot, I, I bought this jersey and this guy right here, I don't know who he is. <laughs> I can't even remember the number, what's the number? I don't even know that. I don't even know. I don't know anything about the. I don't know like what league they're in. I'm assuming they're in a league. Like there are other towns that have teams like this that they play. Where are those other towns? I don't. It could be Murfreesboro. I don't know. You know, Shelbyville. Shelbyville's got a soccer team. 
Like you look, I, I, do, I don't know what they call their competition. Is it the World Cup if they win their league? Like I, it's, I don't know. I know nothing about soccer. I don't know how to tell you about the game. In fact, there are certain things about soccer I don't understand at all. <clears throat> like I don't understand how people get so excited about going to a game that can end zero to zero and everybody's okay with that. <laughs> I'm like, why doesn't somebody come up with this idea? We should stretch the goal the entire length of the field, all right? And every team gets three goalies, and you just shoot from anywhere, and you got a shot. Like, and scores are going up like 40, 50 you know, points apiece. <laughs> a little excitement would be great. I don't know how many games they got left in their season. I don't know how many games they've played. I don't know which ones they've won, which ones they've lost. I don't know the record. I know nothing about soccer. You know what I love? The experience. So when we talk about being witnesses, here's what's crazy. I can wear all this, and I can fool you into thinking I'm a soccer fan. Just an appearance. I, it, hey, he's a soccer fan. No, I'm not. I'm eating a hot dog in a stadium van. That's what I'm a fan of, <laughs> is being experienced. And here's what's crazy about being a witness. Your life is giving testimony about something all the time. All the time. I mean, we could look at the way you dress. It's giving testimony about something. We could look at what you drive. It gives testimony about something you value or where you live. That shows your value or who you hang out with. That shows your value, what you do for a living, what you don't do for a living, how you spend your money or how you save your money. It tells us a lot about you, but it doesn't always tell us the truth. Like, you're here at church, and we can kind of assume you're in church because maybe you're a Christ follower. Maybe Jesus has changed your life. Or maybe you're just here because you want to date the person sitting next to you. Or maybe you're here because our coffee has a reputation of being the best coffee in the city. It's true, and it's free. Maybe you have some weird spiritual obligation that if you don't go to church, your mom's going to be upset with you even though you're 40 years old and she lives four states over. I don't know. I don't know. But on the appearance, it seems one thing, but in reality, it's probably a very different thing. And so when we talk about witnessing, what we're talking about is the marriage of what's true on the inside to what's on the outside. Let me say that again. When we talk about witnesses, when we talk about being testimony to something, we're talking about being a community of people where what's on the inside is matching the outside. So let me tell you what that's not, you know? In the church that I grew up in, uh, what they would have said, and I grew up in the South, so forgive me, you better hope your testimony on the inside is as true as the one on the outside. So if you're going to wear a Christian t-shirt, have y'all ever seen a Christian t-shirt? These are t-shirts that have come to faith by the power of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> These are t-shirts that say, I'm a Christian and you're not, and I don't like you, you know? And like, there'll be that, have you ever seen the one, the Lord's gym and Jesus is doing push-ups with a cross on his back? <laughs> I'm serious. There's a t-shirt out there like that. Somebody in this room's going, I'm going to get that t-shirt. And the church I grew up in is if you're going to wear that testimony, don't you go to no bar because the inside and the outside don't match up. And here's what I want you to hear from the very beginning. Your inside and your outside are never going to match up. They're never going to match up. 
I mean, we just have to come to grips with the fact that Jesus didn't come to save you to make you a super good person so that you could stand in front of the world and go, look how good I am. That's a testimony to you. We're made to give a testimony to Jesus. And when we give testimony to Jesus, we're always giving testimony to what he's doing in our lives. Like, I've been praying about what would it look like for Midtown to start doing testimonial moments in our services? Like, some churches do that. And some churches, man, I'm, I'm just bashing other churches. I'm sorry. You know, please forgive me. It shows you how my inside and my outside don't match up, all right? But here is the typical testimony. Well, 10 years ago, man, I was, on, I was on a wicked path. And Jesus came and rescued me. And when he rescued me, now my life is all in order. Everything's right. He even cleared up my acne. Once I was broken, but now I'm not broken anymore. Look how good I am. Let me tell you something. That may be true about some people, but what's more true about us as people is that we're not fixed that easily. In fact, most of us never get fixed. We go through our lives with struggles. Imagine this testimony. I'm an alcoholic. Not a recovering alcoholic. I'm an alcoholic. And I've tried hard not to drink, but three days ago, I went on a bender and I said things to my wife that I wish I'd have never said. And this is how Jesus is meeting me and my shame, and teaching me how to be forgiving, and also how to be forgiven. Or imagine somebody standing up and going, I'm a workaholic. I just got to confess it to you. Work is more valuable to me than anything. I, I sacrifice my marriage. I sacrifice my time with my kids. I sacrifice even God's call on my life so that I can work. I am so committed to work because I'm so afraid of failure. And I really believe that if I can succeed enough, And if I can do enough that's going to impress everybody around me, then somehow I'll have the life that I think that I want. And this is how Jesus is meeting me in that. It's an idol, and he's slowly pulling it out of my hands. Or imagine somebody doing this. My sin is something more profoundly devious and unnoticeable because my sin is greed. Oh, and i got to confess to you, man, I love greed. Because there's no place in my life that I don't say it could be better if I had more. I want more. I want more experiences. I want more money. There's never a time in my life where I don't think about what I have and go, that's not enough. My life would be better if I had more. And let me tell you how Jesus has made me in that. That's a real life testimony. Because that doesn't give testimony to us. It gives testimony to him. And I'm not saying he doesn't change us. He does. He never leaves us the way he found us. But Jesus is always displaying his glory in my weaknesses. So, if we're going to come to understand how to do that as a church, we have to understand that what's vital in that is words. Words. Just write that down, and Lauren, will you come and read for us? And we'll, we'll get to what I mean by that. Words. So she's going to be in chapter 2, and starting in verse 1. And there's a lot of names in this, so Lauren, thank you. Mm-hmm. You're amazing. Let's see if you want to thank me in a second. We'll see how it does, how it go. Okay. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now 
there were staying in the Jerusalem God-fearing Jews. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one had heard their own language being spoken. And utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. <laughs> with many other words, he warned them, and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Thanks, Lauren. Lord, help us. Uh, Lord, we need your Holy Spirit to, um, to move into us and to fight our resistance, to uh, bring us conviction, and to call us to follow you and give us courage to do that, Father. Um, and we just give you praise in Christ's name. Amen. So if you've never heard this story before, this is um, just the remarkable story of the Holy Spirit descending upon the disciples and the way the Holy Spirit descended with tongues of fire, and all the disciples began to speak in different languages, which gathered a huge crowd, and people were wondering what's going on, and a group of people said they're drunk. And then Peter, of all things, he starts his sermon by saying, no, 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 they're not drunk, it's only nine. Like, like but hey, Ben, if it was like four in the afternoon, maybe, but no, it's only nine. And then he goes on, and we skipped over, but you can go back and read the sermon that Peter preached about Jesus. And the work of Christ is the Messiah. And that day, 3,000 were added to their number. So what's going on here? Well, we have to kind of step back to understand this story. If we step back to the book of Exodus, where the temple was built, and there's a dedication of the temple, we almost see a very par parallel story of God descending in wind and cloud and fire onto the temple and instead of falling onto a temple, now what we see is that the Holy Spirit is falling on the disciples. And it's really significant what's happening here. As we think about the Lord no longer is in a, in a temple, he's no longer dwelling in a building, he's now making the declaration <clears throat> that we are the temple, that we're the place that God is going to dwell now by the power of his Holy Spirit. And we need to talk about a little bit what Pentecost means. Um, you know, Pentecost may mean a lot of different things um, to different people, but to the Jews at that time, what this word actually meant was the festival that was taking place. So the Jews would, would go to Jerusalem three times a year. They would go for the Passover. They would go for the Festival of Weeks. They'd also go for the Festival of Booths. And the Passover was the time where they would celebrate that God had rescued them from slavery out of Egypt. <clears throat> the Festival of Weeks is this festival almost like and harvest festival at the end of the wheat growing season. They bring them all in from the field. 
then take their offerings to the city of Jerusalem and celebrate and give thanks to God for the harvest. And then the festival of booths was to kind of commemorate and remember that their forefathers had made it through the desert and they, they slept in tents. And so they would all come to Jerusalem and sleep in these tents to remember. But the booth or the festival of weeks was actually called Pentecost. Pen meaning five, cost meaning 50, that Pentecost was celebrated exactly 50 days after the Passover. And so after 50 days of the Passover, which we have the celebration of the Lord's Supper, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, was when Pentecost took place. And what's going on? Well, if we go to Acts chapter 1, this is in verse 1, Luke tells us that in my former book, Theopolis, I wrote all about that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. And after giving instruction through the Holy Spirit to the apostles that he had chosen, and after he suffered, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. And he appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. So just to try to give you a timeline, Passover, death, resurrection of Christ, And then for 40 days, Christ appeared to his disciples, convincing them he he was alive and also teaching them about the kingdom. And on the 40th day, he ascended into heaven. That's also in Acts chapter 1. And for 10 days, for 10 days, the disciples are all together, encouraging one another, waiting. And when he talks about the disciples here, I don't want you to think of just, just the 11, because we lost one, and then one was anointed. But I want you to think about that, that these people had started gathering to hear the teachings of Jesus. So some theologians believe that there may have been hundreds of disciples that were all gathered together when the Holy Spirit fell upon them. And the Holy Spirit comes. And boy, does he come. It is the start of a new age. In fact, if you've never heard this before, let me just let you in on something. It's impossible to live the Christian life. You can't do it. The only person that can live the Christian life is Jesus. And what Jesus does is by the power of the Holy Spirit, he puts his life in us so that he can live his life through us. Some would say that Bethlehem was when God was with us, that the crucifixion of Christ where God was for us. But Pentecost is where God is in us. D.L. Moody, the famous evangelist, he said, you might as well try to see without eyes, hear without ears, or breathe without lungs as to try to live the Christian life without the Holy Spirit. You can't do it. You can't do it. In fact, John Stott, who was the pastor for years of All Souls in London, he said, without the Holy Spirit, Christian discipleship would be inconceivable, even impossible. There can be no life without the life giver, no understanding without the spirit of truth, no fellowship without the unity of the spirit, no Christ-likeness of character apart from his fruit, and no effective witness without his power. As a body without breath is a corpse, so the church without the spirit is dead. So what's up with this tongue stuff? You want to talk about tongues for a minute? Because the way the Holy Spirit kind of showed up was pretty dramatic. I mean, it wasn't like, you know, just writing in the sky. It's like, he gave them all, like hundreds of disciples, the capacity to speak in tongues. And a lot of people debate about, were they actually just speaking their native language? But the gift was in the hearer, because they said, we all heard them in our own language. 
Meaning, was the hearing supernatural? Was the speaking supernatural? I don't know. But here's what I do know. The spectacularness of that gift sometimes distracts us from the reason the gift was given. See, miracles, and we talked about this before, when Jesus did miracles, we kind of get stuck there. Like when he heals somebody or raised somebody from the dead. But the miracles were actually a, a, a signpost that was pointing to something that was greater than the miracle. We've said this before. It's like going to Disney and pulling up to the sign and just parking and deciding you're going to spend your whole vacation right in front of the sign. Like, this is great, kids. We're just going to look at the Disney sign for five straight days. No, the sign is pointing to the park. And the sign is an invitation to step into something greater than the sign. And the Holy Spirit gave the sign of tongues, but it was pointing to something more powerful than the gift itself. And what was it pointing to? What they were saying. Their words. It was so important as they were giving testimony to the glory of God, what they were saying was so important, the Holy Spirit gave them a supernatural ability to transcend even the limitations of people's languages. That's a pretty big deal. Now, I said we talk about tongues. And I got to tell you, some people go, well, do tongues still exist? Like, can I speak in tongues? Um, The answer to that question is, I don't know. I I don't know. Can you? Scripture talks about two different kinds of tongues. One is what we experience in Acts chapter 2, this supernatural explosion of language, real language that's interpreted by somebody that's present to give the message that's clearly stated for the edification of the church. There's another tongues that scripture kind of talks about, a spiritual language. And that spiritual language is something that people experience in their prayer language. Some people talk about experiencing it just with themselves. There's not an interpretation. I've never experienced it. Maybe some of you have, and you can come teach me about it. But Paul, even in the time of the first generation of the church, tongues was controversial. And it divided the church in many ways. And people started to say, well, if you don't speak in tongues, you don't really know Jesus because you don't have the Holy Spirit. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, then you don't really know Jesus because the Holy Spirit only shows himself evident by speaking in tongues. Not true. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, this is after the famous chapter on love. It says, pursue love, pursue love, and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. Desire them especially that you may prophesy. Wait a minute. Now, you might want to go and do a study later this afternoon about what does he mean by prophesy there? Does he mean like supernatural utterances about other people's situation? Maybe. Or maybe what he's talking about there is teaching the word, that we're edifying one another with truth. We're giving prophecy of the words of the kingdom of God. It says, for one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues. This is Paul. That'd be great if all of you could speak in tongues. But even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so the church may be built up. And what what I want you to hear in that is not to get stuck on the gift, but to get, get drawn to what the gift is displaying. And what the gift is displaying is the church 
was made to give witness to something greater than themselves. That we were made to give testimony, not on our greatness, but the greatness of the one who has saved us. That we're to give testimony of Jesus. So Francis of Assisi's such a hilarious dude. <clears throat> no, I'm joking. You probably don't know about him. He's a monk from a long time ago. And he's been accredited by saying, preach the gospel at all times, use words if necessary. Y'all ever heard that before? Preach the gospel at all times, use words if necessary. That's not biblical. Like, that's not true at all. In fact, what we learn in Acts chapter 2 is we always use words. We always use words so that we can give testimony to what's most true about us. In Romans chapter 10, it says, How then can they call on the one they've not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And what do you do with good news? You speak it. It's words. It's one of the primary functions of the church. Not just then, but also now. That, that we are the ones giving testimony to the wonders of God and what he has done in our lives through Jesus Christ and the work of his Holy Spirit. We are to give testimony to our friends, our neighbors, our family about this Jesus that has changed our lives and that we live for. It's kind of scary, isn't it? Well, let's, let's talk about it. I've been reading this book this week by Rick, uh, Rick Richardson. He's a guy that does research at the Billy Graham Institute up at Wheaton College. And he's written this book called You Found Me. And it's a book that tries to do deep research on the spiritual beliefs of people in America. And are some of our myths about unbelievers, are they true? He found some really interesting things. One of the things he found is that 79% of unchurched people are fine with us talking to them about our faith if it's something that we genuinely believe in. Wait a minute. Did you all hear that? Almost 8 out of 10 people that you meet in your life are fine with you talking to them about your faith if it's something that you genuinely believe in. Now, I'm not talking about down on the corner, down on Broadway, with a big microphone and a speaker system. You could be giving away gold, and I wouldn't believe you if that's what you were doing. I'm talking about people you have relationships with, people that you genuinely care about. It says, listen to this. When asked if a Christian has ever shared their testimony or Jesus story with you, 71% of unchurched people say no. That they've never had a Christian share their story ever. So let's look at this. If 79% of the world that we live in is interested in a conversation about what, value, what faith you value, and 71% of them said, but no Christian has ever shared with me what they value, what's going on? Is it possible that we're freaking out. And when we freak out, they're waiting for the conversation and ready to listen, but we've stopped talking. We've stepped back into day and age, and we're like, I'm not going to share Jesus with anybody. I'm not going to share my story with anybody. Do you know that most unchurched people, according to 
to this book would identify themselves as Christian. In fact, um, most of them have some kind of church background. And 75% of them said if a friend or a family member, if a family member invited me to church, I'd go with them. 75%. And 70% said if a friend invited me, I would go with them. Curious and want to be invited. So what's going on? And I'll tell you what's going on. It is a scary thing. It is a scary thing to take something that we cherish and share it with another person because we don't know what they're going to do with it. And when it gets scary, let me tell you what fear does. Fear either makes me fight or flight. And if I'm flight, I'm not going to talk about it. But if I fight, we, we as a church have a great reputation to be self-protective. And we throw rocks at people that don't believe the way we believe. We throw rocks at people that don't view sexuality the way we view it. We throw rocks at people that don't do the things that we do. We tend to throw rocks instead of opening our arms and, and embrace people to share with them the beautiful story of Christ. We distance ourselves or we get ready for a fight. And fear can actually make you hurt people that you love. So I was, when I was in college, the guy who was discipling me at the time um, LaVon Welch. LaVon <clears throat> is about six foot four. He's a football player and he weighed probably 250, 260, just a mountain of a man. And so a bunch of us went to the fair in our hometown and we decide, wouldn't it be a hoot if we all went through the haunted house? And so we go through the haunted house and LaVon's just a big chicken. Like he's the biggest dude among all of us. But he's really kind of a scaredy cat. But he had a good front because this was a horrible haunted house. There was nothing scary about it at all till the very end. They kind of, we go through this little door and we realize we're stuck in like, like this cattle-like box with no way out. <clears throat> and it's dark and there's lights flashing, you know. And all of a sudden, in the back door that we just came through, stepped someone with a ski mask and a chainsaw, and he, he started the chainsaw. Now, there was no chain on it. We were completely safe. LaVon didn't care. At that moment, LaVon made a way out, and the way he made his way out was over me. Like, he knocked me to the ground, stepped on me, kicked open the door, and he was out in the fair where he could breathe. I'm back here. I'm his disciple. I'm the one he loves. You're supposed to lay your life down for me instead of laying my life down and stepping on it. That's what fear does. Fear takes the things that we love and it messes them up. And so one of the things we have to do is we have to first talk about what are we so afraid of? What are we so afraid of from our friends, our family, our coworkers, that the church has actually shut its mouth and we hope the outside is enough to let them know who Jesus is. The outside's not enough. It's so deceptive. We have to use our words. So here's my challenge. We're about to go through this whole fall to talk about how do we come alive? How do we become an inviting church? How do we become a place for curious people, for unfinished people, for messy people like us? Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. We're, I'm going to pray. Yes, yeah, it's hilarious. <laughs> That's another thing we do when we're afraid. We laugh. <laughs> What's he about to ask me? Okay. Uh, I'm just going to pray, and all I'm going to ask is, would you pray this prayer with me? 
And the prayer is, Lord, would you help me see the people around me? Yes. Let me see my friends, my coworkers, my family. Just let me see them and have compassion for them and love them. That's all I'm asking. Okay? Let's pray. Father, as we uh, enter into this book of Acts, this story, this tremendous story of the journey of the birth of your church, awaken us, Father. Let us, let us join with the ancient ones in giving testimony, giving witness to Jesus in Jerusalem and all over the world. And I pray, Father, for us today that you give us the ability just to see the people around us today. Just to see them and have compassion for them. To see their curiosity, to see their questions, to see their doubts, to see their anger, to see their hunger. For you have made us all, and our hearts will not know rest until they rest with you. And let us see that in those around us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand here.